Hi everyone, welcome to Behind the Grid, where we explore worldviews from around the world and the key moments that change them forever. What I want to offer you right now is an opportunity to experience your world through someone else's story and to perceive your challenges from a fresh perspective so that you can get past them and reach your wildest goals. I'm your host, Chris Owl, and welcome to the show. Before we start, I want to give a big thank you to our sponsor, Essential Vibes Frequency Jewelry. They're a really cool company. They found a way to put frequencies into metals and crystals, which have different effects when you wear them on your body. If you want to check them out, go to essentialvibes.ca slash owl. Today I'm speaking with Norbu Dunda. Norbu is an experienced Vipassana meditator and world traveler. He has been studying for over 15 years and has recently studied in Burma, the source of Vipassana meditation. Norbu, welcome to Behind the Grid. Thank you, Chris. So for those of us who don't know, what is Vipassana meditation? Vipassana meditation is a mindfulness practice, uh, essentially, uh, a, a form of the type, one form of mindfulness practice. Uh, there are different types of Vipassana according to different teachers. And the one that I practice is uh, from a teacher called uh, S.N. Goenka. To, to learn that uh, Vipassana practice, uh, one has to go to a 10-day silent meditation. And uh, I did that about 15 years ago. So 15 years on and off, I've been practicing quite regularly. Every year I do like a 10-day retreat. I may have missed a year or two, but you know, some years I do, I, I may have done two or even three courses. So yeah, all in all, and averagely, yeah, I've been doing annually 10 days meditation. And, um, and nowadays, I mean, since about three, four years, I've been practicing one to two hours of meditation daily. Uh, but Vipassana essentially is a, uh, if you break down the word Vipassana, it is, um, it's a we, a we, which is special, and Vipassana, which is to see. So it's, I insight, like internal looking, it can also be defined as a special seeing, or or it can be also defined as a true seeing. So there's many ways of defining it, but it's a form of observation or a form of uh, learning that is different than our usual normal learning. So that's why I think it's called vipassana. I don't know when Buddha was Buddha. Him, Buddha is supposed to be the original teacher of Vipassana, uh, although he's he's probably, he's probably taught many different types of meditation. This is um, considered his primary meditation practice, um, according to the Theravada practice. But Vipassana, in a, in in, a, in essentially, is a mind form of mindfulness practice. Wow! And you were mentioning before to me that. This comes originally from the Mahasatipatthana book. I think uh, it is probably it is mentioned in um, several different scriptures or a uh, discourses. But Mahasatipatthana has a very, very step by step and very, very clear presentation of this practice. So I, I depend on Mahasatipatthana as as my reference book, a uh, user manual, and I'm still. But there's a lot to learn. It is a very complex, uh, I mean, it's very difficult to understand the whole thing. I, I'm trying, I try to study it whenever I can. So what are the core 
pillars of the Vipassana meditation? What makes it different from other types of meditation? Uh, Vipassana, as taught by S.N. Goenka, um, that's where I studied. That's sort of my lineage, let's say. How is it different? It's, it's, it's considered a little, slightly a hardcore practice, meditation practice, especially initially when you practice, when you start learning it, um, they start right away by doing a 10 days retreat. So, and during that 10 days of retreat, you are doing seven to 10 hours of meditation per day. Every hour, there's a gap break. Considering uh, many other meditations where you start start by doing five minutes of meditation, so 15 minutes. Uh, the Vipassana is not like that. It's It start off very hardcore. In that sense, that's that, the difference. In terms of practice, it has different steps, which is uh, initially it uh, develops, it's trying to develop concentration by focusing on the breathing. Um, so when you focus on breathing, it's not just a concentration, even though that concentration is the focus, there are other things also. When, when you're breathing, you're also focusing on your body, where you're focusing, you're fo- putting more focus on the, the sensations of the body. So that's the second step. And then uh, in the end, there's there's a practice called metta, which is loving kindness. So, so Vipassana has a combination of different types of meditation also. So yeah, I don't know a lot about other many other different practices but this this is what essentially in a 10 days meditation you learn so breathing sensation and loving kindness and you grew up uh in tibetan buddhist culture right and yes i was born into a yeah tibetan family yeah 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 and my understanding is that your your family is actively practicing tibetan buddhism and then you've gone and done vipassana meditation why did you make that switch yeah, Tibetan Buddhism, I wouldn't say like my parents are like really true Buddhist practitioners. What they do is a very simple form of a practicing Buddhism, which is more ritualistic, more prayers, more reading scriptures, even though they don't really understand the meaning of the prayers or the, the scriptures, they they think it's it's a blessing to read them. So so their their practice is not on a very deep level, but but uh, their practice helps them. Uh, they're very devoted to their practice. I really wanted to understand Buddhism on a deeper level. So so I had to uh, search outside of Tibetan Buddhism, and that's how I found out about Vipassana meditation. One thing about Vipassana meditation was that the retreat was free free of cost. Uh, when I was younger, that was a big motivation for doing meditation. So in the Vipassana meditation, it, it explores the mind and body in a, on a much deeper level. So that's why I switched. I sort of I adopted Vipassana, the Theravada Vipassana, as my primary practice. Even though I am starting to take interest in, um, Buddha, in more deeper levels of uh, Tibetan Buddhism, it wasn't really, really available when I was younger, and it was. Uh, I found it, you know, when I read them, I found it too complex because it involves a lot of symbology and a lot of esoteric things, and and 
the the, the narrative was uh, something that I couldn't understand most of it. So I found Vipassana to be more practical based, more uh, more easy to identify and easy to understand. Uh, but obviously, it was difficult to practice. But that doesn't matter as, as long as I, I I'm understanding what I'm doing. Um, so so it's Vipassana stayed with me as my primary practice. How has Vipassana helped you in your life so far? What have been the effects of doing this practice for 15 years? Initially, Vipassana, after doing, let's say, after, after right after a 10-day course, I felt a surge of energy and, uh, you know, there's a clarity, um, things like that. But these things kind of go away pretty quickly, maybe within a week or two. But as I think back, I think the most important thing that Vipassana probably it may have affected me was it uh, it kind of broadens your mind. It sort of makes you open to uh, open to open to learning more. Uh, I've always been you know uh, been curious and learning, and I think that's what uh, Vipassana has contributed to me as a learner and and. Vipassana itself is a practice of observation. It's learning uh, to observe on a deeper level. So, so even in your normal life, you you uh, you become more obs- observant. So you you know you have that observing attitude to life. And when I say open, initially after doing Vipassana, the, the, there was a time where when I was kind of too attached to Vipassana, where I thought that Vipassana must be the only practice that is the best or the, that's probably the only one. So in that sense, uh, Vipassana sometimes may have been like a something that's not open. You know, I wasn't very open at some point when I thought meditation, Vipassana meditation is the only, is the best practice that you know, others are probably not good or not useful. But I have since changed and I think the reason why I have become more flexible is also in part of my progress in meditation, uh, uh, of the Vipassana meditation. So now I no longer uh, see like, uh, you know, Vipassana is the most superior practice. Um, so, and it helps me. Uh, so we, I think Vipassana has helped me to achieve to that, come to that, to that level. So now I'm much more open to other practices. Vipassana remains my primary practice, but other practices are also, it's very um, interesting to me. I, I learn I learned from them. And uh, some of them I integrate in my life, but uh, uh, meditation itself is a, sometimes it's very specific practice. So I try not to mix, mix uh, different practices. So that has been my journey, but yeah. Wow, that's so fascinating that you've gone through that journey of becoming somewhat dogmatic in a way to protect your practice. And then as, mm-hmm. as you've gone deeper into the practice, it's almost like it contained a, a self-destruct mechanism or something that allowed you to break out mm-hmm. of the dogma that you initially needed. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. yes, definitely. That's That's one of the... The, the traits that I really like in different faiths and worldviews where mm-hmm. 
you can go in it single focused, but then at some point there comes that, that point where you have to, to let it go or, or at least uh, release the dogma at some point, which, which I think, I think that's really healthy for the mind. Yeah. I guess it's the sign of the development when you become more of a, more of a open than, than a, than a dogmatic. So what are some of the other worldviews you're exploring now? You're saying that you're, you've been doing Vipassana for 15 years and you've noticed that there are other faiths or, or versions of, of Buddhism specifically that are, that are appealing to you. And so is it more in that Tibetan lineage or is it other forms of meditation as well? I'm, I'm, I'm just generally exploring different types of Tibetan beliefs, Tibetan, uh, and so even like history of the development of Buddhism in Tibet and, you know, whatever books or articles that comes along, I take interest in it. Like basically like Tibetan is very, Tibetan Buddhism is very, very symbolic, like very, you see paintings, you see artworks, you see gods and goddesses and very wrathful figures. So just like even just at home or, you know, looking at the paintings and artworks and the, even, you know, trying to just contemplate, you know, what could this little thing mean is a sort of taking more interest in Tibetan Buddhism. But I also try to try to read about different parts of Tibetan Buddhism, even very strange things like demonology in Tibetan Buddhism, like what do they think about you know, some of these very strange practices or things like that. Uh, yeah, I'm beginning to have interest in that kind of thing. Even not just Tibetan Buddhism, even Western philosophy where there's things like satanic practices or very occult, very hidden practices. Uh, those kind of thing I'm taking interest. So I don't usually go. I don't. I don't have a very disciplined approach to learning. So I I just study whatever comes along. So yeah. Barbu, what's the appeal to studying Tibetan demonology and Western Satanism? I guess it's the uh, maybe it's the contrast because what I, what I'm practicing is very love and peace and very smooth, gentle, right? Sometimes I feel like I, I, I need more intensity because knowledge is everywhere. You know, as, as long as your heart is, heart, is, heart is in a good place, you can find knowledge and knowledge and everything. So in, in that side of, in, in that sense, I am, I'm, I'm exploring these things, but mostly I guess it's just curiosity. Like I, I think one of the things that I, I like about, qualities I guess about me is that I have strong curiosity so it's 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 a curiosity thing uh it's there's a phase and certain sometimes I am strongly interested in certain things but I yeah I guess uh so yeah I guess the 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 interesting thing about demonology is just the contrast how it's so different it's so foreign to me um you know as opposed to my daily practice that that I need to, yeah, I need to have that contrast to, to, to be, to, I guess, to balance, maybe stay in the middle, but I need to know both sides. Like the, what's the worst, what, what's, what's so horrible about demonology? What's, what are the most horrible things? And I need to understand those things. And then, and then there are all, of course, there's always this very 
beautiful things and meditation and peace and love that's always there uh but the the yeah there's there's very the the, the the demonology and all this esoteric occult stuff uh, is very um, exciting i guess that's one of the reason why i go for it i even though meditation is supposed to make you very gentle and i haven't been able to control my uh, my love for excitement and thrill and things things like that hopefully it's not a bad thing but but i guess yeah that's really interesting so you're saying that you you focus on your meditation practice and it's really calm and it, you're discovering the nature of your personality but there's this other side of you that's really interested in these uh, exciting occult experiences that other people are having. Do you see yourself doing demonology or Satanism or something like that in the future uh, in, in ritual form or joining a religious group like that? And, and if you do, what, like, what would you want to get out of it? Is it just excitement or is there something more? No, no, I don't. Uh, I want to understand I want to understand the process. I don't think I will. I will ever. Um, I, I don't think I'll ever uh, participate in any rituals. I, and I guess I will never understand these practices in fully because I've. I, I have no intention to go full on. You know, practicing. I want to have an opinion on them. Uh, let's say if I'm in an argument with somebody, uh, or you know, I want to have an opinion about them. I mean, I'm gonna ha- I want to have a basic knowledge of these things. How. Yeah, uh, I want to understand the the mechanism or what, how and why people do that. So that's why I, I'm trying to learn from them, or I'm trying to read. I'm trying, taking interest in them. Um, I heard uh, you know any of these rituals involves animal sacrifice and things like that, and I don't I don't want to see any of that. <laughs> so, but I do. I'm very curious, and I, I I like to listen to like secondhand experiences of people, people who have been in rituals and stuff like that. So, those are those are very interesting and very thrilling <laughs> to listen to or to to yeah to get to know them. But yeah, I I do want to learn as much as possible about them. There is. There's a quote that I find really interesting from a book that I've been reading called The Science of Getting Rich. It talks about mm. how things are not brought into being by thinking about their opposites. Health is never to be mm. attained by studying disease and thinking about disease. Righteousness is not to be promoted by studying sin and thinking about sin. And no one ever got rich by studying poverty and thinking about poverty. Medicine as a science of disease mm-hmm. has increased disease. Religion as a st- science of sin has promoted sin. And the economics as a study of poverty will fill the world with wretchedness and want. And I, th- this has been a quote that I've been digesting for a while. And it's mm-hmm. making a case about only thinking about the place that you want to go towards. Do you think that studying something like demonology and like Satanism and like these uh, darker occult studies in general, do you feel like that could pull you away from reaching an ideal state and maybe add more negative experiences or or painful experiences to your consciousness? What do you think about that? Maybe there's a danger, but I don't, as long as I don't think you are actually practicing them, I think the danger is minimal. Uh, you know, 
not not to put down on on these practices. I mean, people who want to do it, it's up to them. Um, for about my the reason why I am taking interest in them uh, is because just out of intellectual curiosity, not because I want to achieve anything. Um, especially not not riches. Um, I think uh, I think of material well-being. I, I believe in mostly say, you know like say like okay hard work. And if you do a hard work or you know it's one way of uh, achieving material success. And the other thing is luck. You know like pure luck. And um, I guess I I, I probably believe I, I don't want to work too hard in material well-being. Because I'm I'm essentially like a spiritual person, and I I ha- I put more focus on spiritual than uh, material achievements. So I I will I probably will not never be rich. But but then the 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 the, the luck luck part is always there. So you know what if I just find a bunch of diamond, you know, I'll be rich. So you never know. Uh, so. So, so, so I'm in in a sense a very spiritual person. I've never looked into rich, uh, you know, poor richness that much. Um, so I think as long as you don't have too much desire, uh, any, you know, the 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 practices that are geared towards that kind of thing is not going to have any grip on me. I see. So what it appears that the way that you are viewing the world is is like there's a separation between what you focus your attention on and the reality that manifests around you. Um, and and I, I totally understand that, that perspective. What do you think about the other perspective of your mind creates your reality? And so if you believe that you're never going to be rich, um, you'll never be rich. But if you believe you're the sort of person that can naturally attract wealth, then yeah, you will naturally attract wealth. Um, and then it, it would go for other things as well. Like if if you believe that there are all of these demons around you and you focus a lot of attention on these demons and dark forces, you'll manifest a lot of these these dark entities around you. So, so to, to, to summarize, there's two ways of looking at the world. One is that your mind does not create reality. And then the other one is that your mind does create reality. Which one do you believe personally and which one is sort of congruent with Vipassana meditation? Oh, yeah. I think Buddha did say like um, everything is mind-made. Like mind is everything. Mind comes first and things like that. So definitely. uh, And the more you think about something, I think definitely true. It will attract. So, yeah, like if if I study the more occultism, Things like that. I think it will definitely, probably, yeah. It's it will surely attract these entities if if uh, if there are any. Um, it's very very possible. I'm not hundred percent sure. Um, but um, I do, you know, things. I do believe in things like curses and 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 these really extra. What do you call it? very strange phenomena, right? Like possessions and things like that. I, I have seen them firsthand, even from childhood. Mediums, people, you know, people being possessed and then like a medium type thing. I have firsthand experience. That's probably, that's why, you know, uh, also I'm, I have interest in these things because I am exposed to them 
when I was very little. But also your question about your mind attracting things, I think there's a lot of truth to that. And my, my mind is sort of more thinking more about spiritual things. It will form a balance. Maybe, you know, because if I think about both opposites, the both things, it will probably form a balance. Yeah, if, if, you, if you think about it from like a, an Advaita non-dual perspective, you could you could see ultimately that the the darkness and the light are ultimately the same and you can come at it from that angle which is which is mm-hmm. another equally valid angle to to come at it from so well there's a, a quote going around on the internet that is attributed to aristotle but isn't actually quite aristotle but it, it's it's still an interesting quote nonetheless it says it is the mark of an educated mind to entertain a thought without accepting it and I, I think that's a really interesting quote because I, I guess you and I do a similar thing here, Norby, where we're interested in learning about these these other aspects of reality uh, to some extent without needing to necessarily go fully into it. So I, I, I totally agree that there is a healthy amount of curiosity uh, that that's worth looking at. So why don't you tell us a bit about Tibetan demonology. I honestly didn't even know that Tibetans had a demonology. What what is Tibetan demonology and how is it different from like Western occult demonology? In Tibetan Buddhism, we divination is very, very common. And then mediumship, you know, channeling medium is also common, very common. There are entities, a spirit entity that possesses an individual, and then through that individual, they will do divination. They will predictions, things like that, uh, or give advices. And there are, in Tibetan Buddhism, there are spirits and entities that have exclusively uh, dedicated themselves to helping a nation, say Tibet. So so, so Tibetan government itself, uh, like Tibetan government in exile, they themselves make it a make a special arrangement for these mediums and channelers to, to consult them and, on a regular basis so so that's the good part of the medium these entities and then there's the other side of the uh, other side the flip side is that there are entities that are actually uh, malevolent they are like bad they create problems so so those are those are what i call demons so so they are there for these demons are there to create problems. They have they may have their agenda, specific agenda. Um, they are believed to to live very long. So so is the good good spirits. So maybe they are the equivalent of the Christian angels and demons. You know, so some are protectors and some are there to create chaos and then gain control. You know, it's not uh, not different than in a human human world where some people are there to help and some people are there to just create problems and you know to to d- dominate and control. So, same thing happens in the in other dimensions where there are powers and energies that that want to either protect or to create uh, problems. So, so in essence, uh, in essentially, like demons are. Agent, things and entities that 
that uh, that create problem that uh, that are not that doesn't have, they don't have uh, the good um, th- their intention is not good for humanity. Uh, oh, there is a there is a controversy in a Tibetan community about there are certain spirits or demon that 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 Tibetan as a collective used to worship but has since been banned maybe but two twenty years ago, twenty, thirty years ago. Heading headed by Dalai Lama, there's certain you know, there's one spirit or entity that that was asked of Tibetans to not worship anymore. Uh, and that created a lot of con- controversy for some time and it has sort of subsided now, but there are um, there are people who still worship the, those kind of entities, and so my curiosity is how, why, and you know how powerful are these demons? What are their manifestations? What are their agendas? These are things that are things that I that I'm curious about that I don't know yet much yet. Yeah, this reminds me a lot of Kali, where uh, there's some people that absolutely mm-hmm. fear Kali as a as a destroyer mm-hmm. and as like a, a party ruiner. And then there's others that really revere Kali and will, will worship her entirely. And the idea is that Kali has your best intention in mind, even though it will appear like she's ruining your life in the short term to the ego's perspective. Mm. Um, is, it, is this like a mm. similar situation that is happening with this Tibetan deity that the Dalai Lama has banned? No, I think it's different. Uh, the, the the Tibetan the, these demons are 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 actual things. They, these are actual beings that that can cause actual problems. But Kali is a very very a- ancient archetype figure, like mythology. Mm, so so it's different. So it's totally different. These are you know, some very, very ancient uh, symbology stuff, you know, Kali. In, in Tibetan iconography, you know, uh, artworks, there are many wrathful, like very angry looking, very fearsome looking deities. Um, and I don't know much about them, but they are supposed to be benevolent and they are protectors. Uh, but there's a reason why they appear so fearsome and so uh, so angry and so you know they're all scary, very scary. You know, fires all around and they look basically faces look like uh, demons, but but uh, but they're not. So it's a representation of a state of mind. Maybe you know they probably you know they represent form of anger so you know so they represent the the anger that we harbor in our heart and and if we leave it unexamined they look like them you know it looks like that kind of a you know very very dangerous that's one i guess that's one description but i don't know exactly i don't know they i don't know why they are depicted so fearsome about kali i have interest in hindu mythology but Kali is a represent. Kali, the word itself means black. There's a there's a few different way of looking at the name. Kali also means time, so it means black, and it also means time. Kali or Kal is time. 
and and she's also a form of Shakti, which is the female, mm, the feminine aspect of uh, you know feminine energy. So so they're very gentle uh, forms of Shakti, very beautiful, very uh, nurturing Shakti figure. The depiction of Kali as a very fearsome mm, is maybe because she she she's in her uh, in a certain form you know when 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 it's necessary a shakti can also take take a form of very wrathful figure and she can she can destroy a very very a very uh, malevolent demons or you know a- any negative aspects that uh, that only the female uh, power female shakti embodiment or kali embodiment can destroy so there are stories like there are certain demons that the, the, the Shiva or the male the males cannot handle, like they cannot kill. And, and so the, the, the female steps in and they take different forms and they, they, will, they will be able to handle or they will kill the demons with their form. The time aspects of Kali is very interesting. Um, uh, there, are certain, there are many paintings where Kali is stepping on Shiva. The Shiva is lying... Lying on the floor or on the, on the flat, sleeping or dead, because the name itself Shiva is 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 connected to Shava, like you know Shavasana, which is like lying, like a sleeping in you know Shava is a dead body. Basically, corpse Shava pose. means yeah, corpse pose. So you, you Shava, there's a connection between Shava and Shiva. So 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 I guess um, so sh- Shiva. Shiva's name is is a form. Shava is you know when you are a corpse, you're very calm, like very immobile. So I think it's one of the uh, depictions of meditation where you you sit still. You're like a corpse. So that's why I guess Shiva represents meditation god. You know he lives in a mountain and you know he's just meditating most of the time. So he, that's why he, his name is Shiva. So he's just sitting there meditating like a corpse uh, all the time. So I think that's how his name is there. But but when there's a big trouble, like some kind of a demon or some attacks happening, uh, while Shiva is lying there like a corpse, uh, Kali does the work. You know, she comes up to the occasion and she she rises up and, and she takes control. You know, so she's stepping on the Shiva. She's like, you know, she's stepping on the. You know, usually. In a in a Hindu culture, the male males are considered you know, males are considered superior. So, so females are usually certain kind of massaging the, the male gods. You know, in the mythology, uh, most of the time the female goddess is kind of massaging the male goddess's feet, and you know she's very uh, the male god is basically dominant. You know, but uh, so that's why the the, the depiction of Kali's having her foot on the Shiva is very, um, what is the word, antithetical or very, very opposite, like very opposite. And like people, most people don't understand, especially in patriarchal, you know, society. Um, so, so that's a very strange depiction. But I think the esoteric meaning, the, the, the meaning of that painting or the artwork symbology is, you know, while when Shiva is not doing nothing, just sitting like a corpse, 
she, you know, she steps up and she's more powerful. She is, she's more, you know, she's taking charge. So she steps on the Shiva and then she has all the tools necessary. So she has many hands with different weapons. This uh, depicts her tools, her mental strengths, you know, the probably, uh, and she is there to, to, to eliminate negative forces. That's absolutely fascinating. It's interesting to see how Shakti and Kali is pictured in such an active way where most female icons are more relaxed and calm in Western society that I see. I mean, if you go back to like ancient Greek culture, their, their pantheon has active feminine figures and passive feminine figures and active masculine figures and passive masculine figures. But in modern, in the modern mythology, when you see like mother Mary in, uh, in the Catholic uh, mythology and you see Christ, you have Christ being a lot more active and, and mother Mary being much more passive. Um, and then Mm -hmm. just like you were saying, even in other Hindu cultures, you see a lot of women being more passive, but then you have this Shakti Kali combo that is so active and so vibrant. And then you have Shiva being like a corpse, so still. Why, why do you think that is? Why do you think it's, there's, like, why do you think femininity is so different around Shakti and Kali? And when it's so passive in so many other cultures and in so many other instances. What I want to say is uh, the Kali or the, the, I told you about Kali being one of the meaning uh, being time, Kal. So it could be, it could be uh, meaning that whenever it's needed, you know, when, when the time arises, uh, you know, Shakti can take a form of Kali. So sometimes I think like this current age right now where m- many females, there's a lot of, you know, the, fem- the, the rise of feminism, you know, right now, this current age and, and a lot of, you know, female oriented uh, activism. So, so, so I think it is, it is, I, it could be a time right now that the, f- the, sh- the female Shakti energy is rising, like it's coming to take a uh, take a uh, power. You know, they want to take power uh, to maybe it's get ready, getting ready to fight. Not necessarily a masculine, you know, masculinity, but a certain form of negativity. You know, so they that only. female aspect can fight so 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 if humanity is facing a certain um, very challenging issues i think a very wrathful form of 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 a feminine energy is is coming and i think probably right you know in this day and and age i think that that's why um, we're seeing a lot of feminine energy rising uh, it, it could, you know, it could explain, and uh, that that uh, symbology could explain um, the reason why. And uh, maybe it's welcome, you know. It's probably, you know, it's it's 
we were seeing it live. I think uh, how feminine is rising, and I I don't know what they're gonna how, how it's gonna end. You know what are the negativities that the feminine energy is gonna fight, but uh, it will be it will be for the good of the humanity. And, and this is I guess maybe the time for male energy to just cool down a little bit. You know, just probably practice more meditation and just do more corpse. It's, it's interesting that you say that it's, I mean, that, that could be taken in a really anti-masculine way, but when you look at what it takes to meditate and you look at how much skill it takes to hold space effectively, mm. I think that it's quite a noble challenge for mm-hmm. masculine role to function mm. as Shiva instead of maybe uh, Brahman or, or Vishnu, as, as is more common mm. in the previous generations, but to function more as Shiva and learn how to hold space again and learn how to observe effectively. Yeah, I'm sure there's a story, you know, the backstory to that depiction, you know, why, why Shiva is sitting like a corpse. It, it does... You know, as you say, the holding space part, that could be a big reason. Usually Shiva, um, in other stories where female energy, like there's another goddess called Durga, also very wrathful. It doesn't look as wrathful as Kali, but uh, Durga is another figure, female Shakti figure, that is um, uh, that takes the dominant uh, warrior uh, figure that uh, you know fights the uh, the demons. So so in that uh, in that story, uh, Shiva basically not just Shiva but many gods, male gods, uh, transfer or give their weapon or their tools to the female. So so they are so they are um, actually. Um, helping or transferring their energy sort of maybe into the, the, the female um, female uh, energy. So, so yeah, that is also a very interesting figure. Her name is Durga and Durga is, is celebrated in India. I think uh, one of their biggest festival um, in Nepal is celebrated as the most the most annual, you know, festival. Um, they celebrate for I think ten days, the Durga festival, and she's a female figure, and she it's celebrated as this female goddess uh, kills that demon as a very, very, very vicious demon, and and, and that's the the celebration. But the story is similar. When when we talk about Shiva and Kali, it it I can't help but think of Yab Yum in contrast from the Tibetan perspective, where Yab Yum are these deities that the masculine feminine principle that are so deeply intertwined in sexual union, uh, and then you have like Kali on Shiva, it's almost like another form of the same connection where the Kali and and the Shiva are both still naked. They're both still intimate. They're both still opposites and they're both still together, but they're doing 
something else as sort of like a more active external form. Whereas in Yabyam, they're more internal and they're more about their, their unity. Uh, do you, what, what similarities do you see in the Tibetan lineage um, of, of Kali and Durga and, uh, and Shiva? And, and how do you think it relates to Yabyam? Uh, like, like you said, yeah, the, the Yabyam is probably uh, just another form of depiction and um, I don't know a lot about Kala Chakra. Kala Chakra is also, again, like very deep and esoteric, like very, there's a part of Kala Chakra, which is, which is uh, for common consumption, you know, the, it is explained, but then there's a part of Kala Chakra that is secret. You know, it's only for like very highly initiated people, you know, certain select students or scholars or uh, monks or you know, so so there are part part of culture is very 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 only for select people. So so I don't know how much, but to me, yeah, Yab Yum is is the same like Yin Yang. It's a polar, the the, the dual principle. Um, but uh, uh, as opposed to Durga and Kali, is an Indian depiction. Uh, it's it's more. Those depictions are more for mythological, you know, sense because it's depicted as a in a war scenario. So it's it's a story, it's a mythology, but with a pr- pretty profound and deep meanings. But Yabuyum, as a as a depiction of of a male and female figure that is naked and in in a in a in a in a in a union, that is a probably a very subtle form of representation, you know, very internal, like you said, but very subtle, a very, very, uh, it shows that it's very, um, it's happening very deep inside, you know, it's a, it's a, it's in a, it's a state, you know, very meditative or very, another very deep level stuff. So that's the, that's the difference, I think. Earlier you mentioned that, you looked at demons as being very, I'm going to use the word literal, um, uh-huh. maybe maybe like a, an entity like you and I. Wow. Yep. You looked at something like, like Kali as more of an archetype. Do you, do, oh, you yeah. see there, do you see this as a distinction? Do you think that it's possible that there is a physical, not or not physical, but like a, a contained entity that's conscious that is Kali? Um, and do you think it's also possible that maybe some of these demons could also be viewed as archetypes? No, uh, I don't think so. Um, there are, in, in India, you can, you know, there are channelers that channelers that can say, they will go into a trance and they will say, oh, now I'm a Shiva. Or, or the next day they will say, oh, now I'm a Kali and, and you can ask me questions and you know, I will bless you. And I think the, the, those kind of channelers probably are not true. You know, most probably they're not true. I don't, I don't think so because I, I said, I, yeah, like I said before, they are archetypes and they're, they're just, uh, yeah, they're just, um, they're not real entities. But the... 
the other the the, the demons figure in Tibet, uh, those are real, you know. Yeah, those are those are, you know, almost physical. You know, you can they can even smash your windows or they can cause trouble. Like they can cause you to have accidents or um, they can manifest in a in a. Let's say if you're a farmer your crops would dry, die or your animals, your, you know, animals would die. So they, they can, they can come in a very physical, physical manifestation. You know, they won't, I don't think they can, they can take shapes and attack you, but they can do uh, many other things. Uh, those are, I haven't directly uh, experienced them, but I have, you know, very, these are these are things that are very uh, common. It hasn't repeatedly in a Tibetan um, communities. You know these are uh, well, you know well almost well established things in in Tibetan community. Uh, how dangerous these things are, and uh, I mean, yeah, and uh, yeah, I, I mean, as as in Western. Um, cultures uh, you you have heard of things like you sell the soul to your devils and things like that sure i've heard of um that. yeah um th- those are i think it's probably the similar kind of thing entity these entities have there are certain channels that you can you can con- con- connect with them and and then you can uh, literally make uh, contracts like you can sell your soul and things like this so so these are entities that are not not human, and uh, we don't know what they are, but they can have you can have transactions with them. So you can have you know you can have uh, contracts. You can uh, have yeah there are certain relation types of relationships, uh, and we can we consider that a dangerous, very dangerous relationship where you will. It's a short term gain, but you will in the end. They don't. They don't have your good uh, in their mind. They have, They are. They're not. You know. They, they know how special human is, and they are taking advantage of our naive naivety. I want to explore this worldview from a couple different angles, Marbu. It's really interesting to me. The first, the first way I want to explore this is I want to look at this from the perspective of these archetypes as also being real in the same way you're describing. And then I want to go in, I want to look at this as maybe the demons are just archetypes. And I, I want to just play around with, with a couple different questions here. So I want to just start with my my personal experience with some of these deities is uh, on DMT one time I met Ganesh and it was a very personal experience. It was like Ganesh was in front of me. I was having a psychic conversation with him. Like it wasn't really with words. It was with more impressions. And mm-hmm. it was very transformative for my life. Like a, a lot of major mental blocks were moved mm-hmm. from that. Uh, and then I know Karen, my wife as well, she has had similar experiences with Callie mm. where she saw Callie in detail and 
Kali like merged with her and then her arms became Kali's arms. Wow. Uh, so I, I, I wonder if it's possible that this paradox might be solved the way that most paradox, paradoxes are solved, where it's true from both angles, where they mm. are archetypes, but mm-hmm. they're also entities that you can talk with and you can engage with. Uh, oh, okay. Your thoughts on that? Mm. So uh, I think it's possible in this sense. I, I, you know, let's say, let's say there are some people that that embody those archetypes. Let's say, let's say in a historic uh, example of Joan of Arc. Like, uh, she she's a French girl that uh, that fought very bravely in a war sometime, right? So, so, hmm. So she probably like embody that kind of shakti energy. You know, she that uh, like a Kali type of energy. You know, I guess so. So maybe the 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 Kali is not just an archetype, but it's energetic or it's a a certain um, um, certain form of energy, um, and. Uh, you know, it could be passed on, passed down. Uh, it's very difficult for me to say that it is an entity because, you know, Kali is depicted as having multiple uh, limbs, you know, like, I don't know how many, but some figures are showing like 10 arms on each. each. Uh, but yeah, so... Uh, so it's energy, energetic. So in, in, let's say in a community or in a society, there's sometimes a very strong female figure just rises up and, and then uh, solves problems. So these, these, these women carries the Kali energy, you know, especially if they are very um, confront, you know, they, they are not afraid to confront or they are not afraid to be aggressive and fight for their for for the rights or for the good of the community so they're they're carrying within them a, a kali energy um so in that sense there's not just a story or a or a entity but there it's a it's a it's an energy um uh, that is is that is uh you know embodying that comes that comes into a person. It's almost yeah. Again, it's almost like a possession, but that but the but it's it's not a just a just a random session. But it's more the person has developed the capacity to to in, you know to inherit that kind of energy. Um. So so yeah, I I would say let's say yeah as an energy and. Still, I, I'm not still convinced about as an as a physical entity, but who knows? I know I don't. You know, I'm not conclusive on that. Like it, it, it could be, could be a an entity. So, no, but one yeah. of the reasons why I I can I I can see it also as an entity. I really like your way of describing it as an energy as well. That's that that mm. totally lines up with with my experience as well. But mm. there's also this sense of me having experienced a specific form. And at the time when I had experienced Ganesh, for example, I had never 
even looked into Hinduism. I didn't know anything about Hindu mythology. I didn't know mm. the name Ganesh. I didn't know mm. the image of Ganesh. Like I grew up Christian and then I was atheist for a while. Mm. So er, like that moment experiencing that entity was really pivotal for mm. me because I was able to to research this entity later and see like, wow, that's that's like that's what I saw. I saw that mm-hmm. entity. Um, mm. Now the the entity the colors didn't match what I saw. My the entity I saw had the same form. Ganesh had all the same form, but it the colors were all all I guess you could say psychedelic. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Whereas traditional Ganesh pictures are like really nicely colored in and everything. <laughs> but, yes, but there was there was a lot of similarities beyond the form too in terms of the way it interacted with me. Uh, specifically what it did in my experience and it, it matched up. So mm-hmm. I think for for that reason, I mm-hmm. wonder if if maybe these energies are are also conscious. So they're energy, but it's like a conscious energy that can create forms in the minds of humans, maybe. Something mm. like that. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah. Sure. Uh let's say again the example of Joan of Arc in France right like let's say something like that happened in um in um in 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 India so all this very oh so India has a very in historically you know there are very powerful female figures that went into war and defending defended their country against the Muslims or against the British or whatever so how do you how do you depict a, a you know, so let's, you know, they want to memorize, memorize them uh, to build a statue or whatever. Uh, so how do you, how do you, how do you depict them? How do you memorize them? Uh, so they do, do artwork, right? So they, then they draw a picture and then they, you know, and, and eventually they end up, you know, as hundreds of years and maybe a thousand, thousand years, 2000 years, these artwork, this uh, symbology changes. And then, so they're trying to depict the same form of, uh, same form of, uh, of, of the energy that they, they, it's represented in the icon. Uh, that's one way of putting it. And then there's the, another way of putting it is, uh, 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 in essence, since you don't have a Hindu background, but you still saw Ganesh, so, the one explanation could be that um, that uh, you are connecting in the collective, uh, you're you're connecting into the collective um, mind. So, or or you could be it could be a past life thing, you know, like so 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 maybe in, in one of your past lives could you could be a a Hindu. So. So, so that's how you 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 are able to connect with the image of Ganesh. Um, uh, when I say collect, when you're connecting the collective, uh, you're connecting to the. There's, there's a lot of you know you there's a lot of Indians in in India whatever. So a lot of people know the image of Ganesh and how they relate to it. So you're connecting, on a very deep level to the that part of energy where people know uh, uh, the the. You know, the people know the image of the Ganesha, so you're tapping into that, and you're seeing the image, uh, even if you don't have exposure to the figure. Yeah! Wow, it's it, 
you know, I don't think we'll ever know. <laughs> yeah, we never know. Uh, Let's look at the demons again, because you were saying that these demons are very specific entities, as though it could be maybe an alien on another vibration, on another dimension, or I, I mean, I'm using the word alien very loosely, just meaning non-human form. Um, mm-hmm. So could it be... Could it be that these entities could also be more abstract and more archetypal? I have one friend who was on ayahuasca and purged out this demon and later was able to look it up in Solomon's Goetica or something like that. I'm probably butchering the name. Um, But this this book of demons, I think it's called Mm. The Lesser Key of Solomon, something like that. And he was able to see the exact figure that he saw in his ayahuasca experience. So I, I found that really interesting too, because like a lot of people have seen this figure, just like like I've seen um, like Ganesh and other people have seen Ganesh. Uh, do you think that this figure actually exists, or do you think exists with like a specific? form kind of like humans do or do you think it's more like the effect of it so you you could look at it from a psychological angle of uh this this demon has three heads one of them is the head of a a wolf one of them is the head of a it's like a king and then one of them is a head of a i think it's a spider or something um and then it it symbolizes it symbolized this uh, fear, shame, and control cycle when you read it in the in the in the demonology book, where mm-hmm. when you when you experience um, fear, shame, and control. So when you you, when you get ashamed about something, um, maybe Ooh. you're made fun of for something, and then because of that, you have fear that somebody else is going to expose your vulnerability. And so you, you try to take control and maybe the way you take control is by pushing people away so that they can't do that. And then that creates more shame as you push people away and they make fun of you more. And then you become more afraid of people and then you become more controlling and it just creates this psychological loop. And you could potentially see that demon as an archetypal representation of that loop. Like, what do you what do you think about that? Could demons be viewed in that way as well? Mm, yeah, uh, especially all, really really old ones. Um, maybe maybe not all of them, but many of them, especially with like um, very 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 strange figures. Maybe they're more archetypal than a real thing, um, and. Uh, Demons that have these really strange figures, again, they could be a work of the magicians or, you know, the masters of the occults, you know, they're trying to evoke that kind of energy. uh, So that's why they draw these things. Um, Or like you said, you, you know, sometimes people just see those depictions but they are actually a a they are actually a uh, uh, external manifestations of 
that person's own internal state of mind, you know? Uh, so whatever is going in your subconscious or unconscious level is you're seeing that like a mirror outside. So, so then you, you draw it and that, uh, that becomes, you know, a, a representation, representation of a state of mind. I want to circle back and talk about Vipassana a bit more. I feel like there's, there's so much beauty in Vipassana and I don't think we've fully gone through that. What are some of the key beliefs that you have to adopt in order to be part of the Vipassana culture and the Vipassana lineage? Oh yeah, there, there's definitely some leap of faith you have to make, uh, even in meditation. Even though it's very, you know, considered very scientific and everything, um, it does require a certain level of faith, um, belief. Basically, belief that you, if you sit down still and you know keep doing your meditation, keep keep focusing on mind, it somehow it will help you, um, you know, help you expand your mind or whatever. Um, so, there, there, I, so the belief is, um, yeah, um, you, you sit down and meditate, um, close your mind, close your eyes. I mean, yeah, closing the eyes is not, not meant, you know, not uh, compulsory uh, in other tradition, but in specifically in Essen going because Vipassana, I, I, closing your eyes is quite considered important especially in the beginning but it's a gradual thing i think that initially the initially you have to believe that um that it requires a certain level a certain amount of patience um your body will resist you know you your body will start to hurt after 15 20 minutes so you have to have a belief that a sustained, even if it hurts, a sustained practice is the way to go. So, so, so in that sense, that there's a there's a requirement like patience. Patience is a huge uh, requirement. You know, it's not something a very totally superstitious kind of belief, but but you do have to have a certain faith. You know, in in the teachings and the teachers. I also want to ask, they have these, these things you have to follow. They have different, I, I don't, I don't remember what they're called, Norbu, but they have different rules you have to abide by. Oh yeah. Yeah. What, what are these oh. rules and how do they help you in your practice? Yeah. There's a um, tradition of taking refuge. Um, I think uh, it's more of a, a gratitude, um, um, gratitude practice. So initially, before you're being taught anything, you sort of take a refuge. So you speak out loud or repeat after the teacher and say that I take refuge um, under Buddha and under the, the teachings and the community. So again, um, and nobody is forced to take those uh, 
um, uh, to take those uh, refuge, but it is you know it, it's it's part of the part of the part of the practice. So, so but you know because it, it's made into a tradition because uh, it, it's just the tradition is emphasizing the uh, uh, the importance of certain gratitude. You know, so where does it come from? You know, to understand. You know, if, if you leave that out. And in the next thousand years, nobody's going to know where it's coming from. Is it for it's Buddha, Dhamma, community? So I guess these are traditions, uh, or formalities are there um, to emphasize important of certain aspects of the practice. So the Buddha is, per, is its entity where this is coming from. And Dharma is the name of the practice of the Dharma as the law. So you take the take refuge or take... Um, you you are you are sort of submitting under under that you you you're you're accepting the importance of these things so and then the community so three things that you take refuge under this this happens really in the beginning uh, and your people repeat people do that every single day people repeat and chant that uh, and. and uh, every day, and it's part of a many practices. But in, in usually in a meditation practice, it's it's up to you. You know, you I think. But what else is there? Uh, so silence is considered very very important uh, in meditation. That's one of the rules in the in the course, and also in general in life. Uh, you in in a, in <clears throat> as a general advice the. You are, you know, you're not supposed to gossip and you know, talk a lot or it's considered conducive to a spiritual person to just speak less and, and speak only important things or, or be very gentle and well-spoken, kind-spoken. But silence is considered the best, especially in, in meditation. Uh, that's very important. Uh, and uh, what else? Uh, do, you know, do you remember any other beliefs or yeah yeah totally i want to dig into silence a bit though there's something really interesting here i've noticed from my own experience and my own meditative practices that when i get into a fight or or even it, it could be it could be just i send an email and it's not written compassionately sometimes i'll be thinking about it over and over and over again, even as I'm trying to meditate, it just keeps popping back up into my head. So I totally understand the value of silence. You're not generating these karmas. Yeah, true. Yeah, silence is um, this is a quite an important requirement. Uh, it's, yeah, when you, especially if you are when you're uh, a serious practitioner. In general, uh, it's it's mentioned in the in the scripture itself. Like, if you want to seriously meditate, you have to go to a forest. You know, you have to go to a forest where there's nobody. Uh, so the so you don't have anybody to talk to. You know, so forest is not like uh, completely silent. You know, there's the trees. There are probably animals and making sounds, but they're they these are very organic sounds. There are like white sounds in the background that doesn't really, you know, interrupt your meditation. But uh, silence is important in the sense that you're not talking to
to other people because that is externalization and the point of meditation is to go inside. So that's why silence. Um, so in the scripture, you know, it's advised to go to meditation uh, for meditation in a forest or you find a space where there's least amount of sound or actually you know, zero sound. So I think the less sound there is, there is the, the, the more deeper the meditation can go. Um, it's just the, you know, the, the mind is just so subtle, uh, especially when you, when you are able, you know, some of the advanced, very advanced meditator, when they go very deep, even very, very small sounds can, uh, uh, affect them, affect them. They, they could, um, they, they could experience it in a very harsh, you know, like even as small uh, sound can they can physically feel those sounds you know so so it's very delicate uh people who are in a very very deep meditation so you know that's something to do with that yeah have you noticed that it is better to do meditation sitting down in silence as compared to maybe moving around and doing meditation i have one friend who says that everything he does is meditation, so he doesn't need to sit down. What, what would you say in response to that from a Vipassana perspective? Yeah, the, the goal of meditation itself, in a sitting meditation itself, is, is developing, it's actually developing the capacity to do meditation. It is, meditation itself, you know, it can be in any position, standing, walking, talking, you know, as you're, you're mindful, you're, you're observant, you're, you are in a state of examination, I, you know, those are the state, you know, meditative state of mind, and, and it can be achieved in any, any other positions. And the goal, an ultimate goal of meditation practice is to achieve that level of awareness where you don't necessarily have to sit down. Uh, but um, medita- you sit down and meditate to go to a very, very deep level, you know, to level of the mind. And that is not possible when you are walking and talking and, you know. So there are levels of, of the depth of your mind. How deep do you want to go? So if, you, if, you're going, if, you're, if you are going very, very deep, it will you will need to have, find a quiet space to, to go dive very deep in the mind. Uh, but, but you develop the quality to be in a meditative state in all, all circumstances. That's, the, that's sort of like the goal. You know? So I think some of the other things that I remember from Vipassana, I've, I've done Vipassana once. Uh, well, twice. I've, I've done it for a total of 13 days, 10-day <laughs> mm. retreat and a, and a three-day retreat. And it, it's been oh. absolutely phenomenal for me. I, I was able mm. to to experience my mind better. I found that there is more space between stimulus and my reaction to it. So I had more control over my reactions. I, it was it was an incredible experience. One of, one of the most important experiences of my life, for sure. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, it's very it's very challenging. One of the things that I yeah. found very challenging about it was just how much like anxiety came up and boredom came up as I did Vipassana. 
what are some of the, the things that have come up for you in your meditation journey as, as you've spent countless hours meditating uh, in silence? For me, it's mostly the physical pain. So, so you sit down and meditate and my knee starts hurting after 20 minutes, 25 and a half an hour. And then it, 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 the, the pain increases, especially when you, when you try not to move. Uh, so a certain time of the day, you are advised to not move as much as possible. So most of these are extremely painful for me. So my challenge is mostly physical pain. And, and during the meditation, I understood, you know, there are certain times that I was able to be very, um, to, to, you know, go through the meditate, you know, one hour meditation without moving the body. So, uh, so I let the pain, you know, t- you know, come, you know, so I ignore my pain. So you have to yeah ignore my pain. And then, and then at some point you, you learn a lot from, you know, how your mind is so, um, uh, you learn the pull and push of your mind of how much uh, it has its uh, grip on you. So, so through, through, through this practice of, you know, to bearing that pain, uh, I learn a lot of things and that's one aspect, but um, any other things that's so, Mentally, I don't know. Sometimes, yeah, I don't remember a lot of the like uh, mentally. Yeah, a lot of the times I uh, just uh, um, cannot focus. I'm, uh, like it's mind goes everywhere. So the distraction, yeah, distraction is again another extremely powerful because I have a very curious mind. My just my mind just goes everywhere. And then, and then, uh, oh, uh, the, the, it's just a matter of um, practicing and keep bringing your mind and also um, studying the scriptures. Um, so having, having growing more faith in the practice. So, 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 so when I read some of the, the practices, and, and then I so when I try to, especially Mahasatipitana, I try, try to understand certain steps and trying to find where I'm, I'm, you know, I'm lacking. So mostly it comes to when you are distracted. Uh, I use, I use unconventional methods sometimes uh, where the the teacher doesn't necessarily advise certain things but you know i use different methods um like let's say i've been using even uh descartes uh philosophy where where it's saying like any nothing is real nothing uh, you cannot trust anything to be true in itself except the except um except that you're thinking you know everything that you see everything you hear touch smell your sensory input there there they could be just totally just you know not real you know it could be a, a hologram or a you know that's very true and he's very I, I like that you know it's very popular and it helps to so but I, but I but I use that philosophy that that idea and put a little um, put my own uh, little 
input in, and I tell myself that that all the thinking that I'm doing is not real. You know, I tell myself that that's going one step above Descartes. So he puts thinking as as the number logic, uh, as the number one, uh, uh, the the most believable. You know, that the can cannot be denied. You know that. Think it cannot be denied as untrue. You know, thinking is the most important. So I, I go one step further and says thinking, thinking is also not true. You know, you, because you think wild stuff, you're completely illogical stuff. Uh, so what is I go by saying that uh, the what is that I can feel alive right now is the breathing. It's you know breathing and it's touching my upper lip. Uh, so that is something that is live and I'm feeling uh, at the moment, and it's continuous. So there are few things that that makes convinces me that uh, that's that is the most important thing. That is that is the most truest thing in the world. What what? Yeah. So, so that helps me to focus on the breathing because that is the most truest thing in the world because it's happening live and it's continuous and um, you know it's not it, it's always there. You know you can find it at any point. So that. That helps me to concentrate. If I if I do that that correctly, it always brings my mind to to focus and to strengthen my focus to to stay longer in my practice. But but at some point again, the mind overpowers, and again, you're distracted, and and the practice is to keep coming back, and uh, also to understand that uh, sometimes, I mean, not sometimes, but uh, even when your mind is lost. Um, it, it it is considered part of a practice. It's not considered uh, necessarily like really bad or you know th- that you're doing wrong. That losing the mind and bringing it back it is part of a practice. It's um, so yeah, yeah. Unless you're not, if you're not making any effort to come back, that then then it's then it becomes it's not a practice. But if if you're making some effort to bring back your mind, then even losing your mind to, to forgetting, these are actually, there is a function involved where your mind is sort of trying to digest. So it's going a little bit away. And then if you bring it back, it, it, you're, you're in a different, slightly different level. And then you continue your focus. And then at some point, your mind is gone somewhere. So your mind is taking a little break, you know, sometimes. And that it's not necessarily a, a wrong or bad that you, your mind is gone. I think it's part, it comes as part of the practice. That's really helpful, Norbu. It seems like you are saying that Descartes says, I think, therefore I am, but you're mm-hmm. taking it one step further and you're saying, no, I breathe, therefore I am. Yeah, exactly. Could, could yeah, it be he, taken they, further, though? Could it could it be taken to, I sense, therefore I am. Yeah, it it is basically a sense sense thing, and he doesn't he doesn't like uh, to put emphasis on sense, and I'm I'm actually maybe putting going one step down, not one step further, um, but um, but I I could be just um, twisting it or making it my own view on it um so yeah he he puts logic as more superior and the sense sensory as as uh, as lesser uh, or it can be manipulated you know sense sensory is, is 
is can, is less trustworthy. You know, it, it's less. Uh, but specifically, the breathing and the, the touch of the breathing is very very powerful because because of it being. Uh, live, it's it's live and continuous, so, and it's easy to feel. You know, it's it's easy to sort of comparatively, it's easy to attend to uh, on a single in a single point. So that makes it makes it more uh, more real. Um, you know, it's, I could say like, oh, uh, you know, the breeze, my the, the air that's on my face could be a sense, and I that could be superior, but those are not continuous you know those are those are there one moment and there's not there another moment uh so that's why like sensation is also you know sensation in general is a very strong focus because it, it is a it is a sense it, it is a sensual sensual like a you know a thing but but it is a it, it's used as a it's used as a focusing point of but more importantly, as a a a learning, uh, uh, as a as a subject of observation, because we everything that we do is controlled by how what we sense. You know, sense is like the data, like in, like in a like in the modern world, data is everything. You know, you you judge or you decide decision make decision. Everything is based on data, and data is the most important thing. That's like. It's the same thing, and like it sense sense is how the consciousness communicates or makes sense, make you know, make a sense of the what to do. So that's why I think um, you know if you pay attention to the certain you know if you if you look at the sense in a certain way, it's more more real than uh, logic and thinking. Yeah, I, I totally agree with that. One, what Descartes could be saying, though, is I think, therefore I am. He could be saying not what he's thinking is true, but just the mere fact that a thought is there and he can experience it. Uh, oh, yeah. He might be saying that. Yeah, I, I don't, I'm not very familiar yeah, with Descartes. I feel like I know sort of generally, but yeah. So have you noticed any limitations from Vipassana? Do you find that there's some things that you can't do with with that framework, with that worldview? So yeah, Vipassana is my primary practice, but but I don't consider Vipassana as the ultimate. Um, it's It's... Let's say it's like my primary research project, and it's not. I, I said, I guess it's like a bet. You know, I'm betting on Vipassana to be to be the most promising um, way to a meaningful life. Um, but uh, but it, I could be wrong. You know, if I had just done. You know, if I had lived differently, that could probably be. You know, if I had gone into MBA and if you, if I did some, you know, into businesses and if I become rich, that could be a more meaningful life. So, I I don't I I I I read and I'm interested in a lot of philosophies and practices, um, but um, but none of them I consider hundred percent. You know, 
Right. And, and then different people have, have different preferences. So for me, the Pasna has been, let's say I have decided to make that my research project. So I'm, I'm trying hard to understand. And then, and then, and then I definitely encounter limitations. Uh, I, I guess the limitation is, is more mine, my, myself than the practice itself because um i've seen i've seen great results in many people and i have i have been experiencing certain limitations like you know there are certain at some point i can't go further but it could be because i'm experiencing too much pain in my body you know my knees my uh, legs my back so at after a certain point i can't go further i felt like okay this is such, uh, after a certain point i there's not much things that I've gained other than other than just um you know becoming more of a calm or you know giving me more peace like that uh but but I do definitely feel like you know after fifteen years you know uh I, I still feel like I haven't really you know. I expected, you know, as expected, I haven't gone too further. Like I haven't reached the higher level of realization. So I don't know if, if I'm practicing incorrectly or is the limitations in my practices or is limitations in the technique. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, that, that seems like you're, you're very self-aware about the limitations, um, as far as it goes. And I, I like that you have a perspective that it is just one way and not the only way. How, how does Vipassana view other religions and is it compatible with other religions uh, and worldviews and, and forms of spirituality? Vipassana as a, as a community, you know, as a specific community of SN Goenka, they're quite conservative. So, in their meditation center, they usually don't tolerate if you bring talk, uh, you know, bring literature from other traditions uh, and talk about other other practices. Um, and they don't they don't want you to practice uh, other types of meditation in their center, especially not during the course. You know, when the courses, because there has been many 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 cases where there has been complications um you know certain people that have that you know that practice let's say kudalini meditation or some strength very you know whatever any kind of meditation even even not just meditation but other type practice uh, practices like reiki or uh so they they do uh, come to do vipassana at the course but then they start doing other you know energetic practices and then they they suddenly become uh some complications in the mind and then and then suddenly they are you know sometimes suddenly they are shaking body or warming up or shouting screaming whatever there are many cases like that so they so they don't want to they don't have time to deal with that that kind of thing because uh, very you know let me uh, limited resources they have so uh and plus there are many other students there that that are that are the priority so so they don't really tolerate that's why they're pretty conservative uh, but it just doesn't mean that they 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 are trying to uh emphasis that their practice is the is the only you know the, the one and then um 
but they do want people to at some point make a decision and say you know say that you are uh, uh, kind of make a decision to uh, you know to stick to one practice you know they're not saying stick to the person but they want people to the, the philosophy and i believe that i think i think people in general should um explore as many practices possible and then make one 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 or two practices as the base you know to to make a to have you know have us have a base you know so so adopt or take one practice and then developed uh in that practice but you're free to explore other practices but Vipassana, they they say you you just explore uh, uh, explore, but adopt one, and then it's best to not explore too much. That's the sense that I'm getting, but I I think it depends on teacher to teacher, and not everyone thinks the same way. Um, but but it makes sense to uh, stick to one practice after after a certain time of search. Um, it's the same thing in in, in the in the modern in the normal world. You cannot possibly become a doctor, lawyer, engineer, everything. So you you take one subject and then pursue it diligently. So, but it doesn't mean that if you're a doctor, you can't be, you know, you can't take some interest in engineering or law. So you're free to do those things. You know, you know, but make make something your uh, you know, base, you know, your main practice. So that's, that makes sense to me in, in any case. Yeah. Now that makes a lot of sense. You were mentioning initially that this was the Buddha's primary form of meditation. How did that come about? How did it go from being Buddhism uh, taught right from the Buddha into all of these different versions of Buddhism and all of them are claiming that theirs is a more authentic version or so to speak. How, how mm-hmm. is it that this particular one is correct from the Buddha and the other ones are, are, are different or deviations from it? So in Vipassana itself, there are the the Mahasatipatthana scripture that I was talking about is is the one that is mostly talking about vipassana, but strangely, the Mahasatipatthana doesn't mention vipassana. That's one thing. Uh, a side note: it doesn't really the word vipassana doesn't appear in that uh, scripture. I think the word vipassana, I think it's again a later development, probably. But um, the vipassana as a primary practice is a, I think it's a claim by the Theravada, mm, Theravada practitioners, the, the, pra, the part type of practice that is done in Thailand, Burma, and Sri Lanka. So, so the so other practices um, are either a branching out from these practices, some from this practice vipassana, or um, or uh, it, it is an independent um, meditation that is taught by Buddha in a different form. So there, 
I don't know the entirety of the Buddhist literature, you know, all the scriptures. Uh, but I think there are uh, something called Abhidhamma, which is a very um, advanced form of uh, 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 Tibetan scriptures that that um, that talks about other different types of meditation. And the belief is that the Abhidhamma is actually not taught to the humans, but it was taught to the to other other beings, other you know taught in other dimensions so yeah so there are things where they say that buddha in the daytime he teach he teach the humans and at nighttime he's still teaching other beings and uh you know these kind of things i i don't know i'm not sure it just it's just like a mythology or some stories um but it could be possible. Um, but um, but it's just a claim that Theravada is claiming that Vipassana is the, 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 the only practice that a Buddha was doing, or that's the that's the only practice that he taught. I think that's the claim. I'm not 100% sure. Um, but yeah, in most of these countries, I think Vipassana is mostly the primary teaching. Oh, maybe not, because there's somebody called Buddha Gosha. Buddha Gosha, he... I don't know how many years. It's, he's not a very old figure. Uh, so this he made. He wrote a book called Path of Purification, and in that book, he had made a list of all the Buddhist practices. And this is this is not in, not uh, a Tibetan Buddhism, although this book could have been transferred or translated to 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 Tibet. You know, it has been exported to Tibet. But that book in particular has a list of many different practices, uh, which, uh, so it's not just only Vipassana, there are other different types of concentration, different different ways of uh, doing meditation. So, 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 so Mahasatipatthana is, is one form, one, supposedly it's, it's a kind of a little bit advanced form of practice. Um, but if you're not able to, there always room for maybe there was a room for uh, teachers to explore, you know, so like say if a certain student is having a very difficult time focusing on breathing, then what do you do as a teacher? You, you find a different way for that student to uh, gradually improve, you know, so that those, so that he can uh, gradually come up, come to, come to focus on breathing. So, so they would start by gazing at a lamp or a light or a, or a dot in the wall. Um, so, so, and then, then counting, breathing, counting. So, and, and then I guess uh, yoga practices, you know, the, the physical practices, these are all, all uh, developed to aid in meditation. And, and um, that, you know, I, that's my, again, that's my view. Uh, so 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 it's it's very is it's it's these are debatable things uh whether buddha only taught that thing or he taught many different things so but it makes sense to you know he would he would to a very capable person he would teach very advanced uh meditation or to a to a lesser um you know capacity person let's say a peasant comes to him you know probably he would teach something simpler or to, as opposed to like a very advanced scholar. Uh, so that makes sense. Um, so, 
Yeah, but uh, in in general, in Theravada environment, Vipassana is considered the the primary practice. Yeah. So I understand, Norbu, that you get into a lot of conspiracy as well in your in your studies. You get a lot of value by looking at a lot of fringe ways of viewing the world. How has your research into conspiracies provided value to your life and provided um, use towards your goals? I think it's, again, it's just a matter of curiosity and having the time to do it. Um, so I'm just doing like part-time work and I have time to, to look into these things. Um, so it, it's sort of like a, these are a, a, a luxury. Most people don't have, you know, to time or the, you know, they don't have, uh, and it's, I don't think it's a, it's, it's the best kind of hobby, but, uh, people who have, have the curiosity, have the, have the determination, um, Conspiracy theory is a very, um, a very, you know, it's a very fun, um, but also it's very dangerous. Uh, so you can't take anything in a face value. It's kind of like mining gold in a river. You know, you spend hours and hours and hours, and 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 you will find like a tiny, tiny little, you know, nuggets of gold. So 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 in that sense, it's a very, uh, um, it's a you know, it's somebody, it's something people who has time and who has, uh, uh, who has, you know, who has the, you know, who has the, uh, you know, who can entertain, who get entertained by certain, they love to do these things. So that's why people who are in conspiracy, they do that. But not everyone who goes into it, mm, uh, you know, some people become very cynical. Some people become very fearful. Some people, you know, so it's, it's, so, so people, it, it, there's a there's a potential risk involved in exploring these kind of things. So, uh, I suppose I, I'm I'm maybe I consider myself a little bit lucky, or or maybe I'm approaching in a right way, or also maybe I I don't take it very very seriously. You know, I just explore it and I forget most of it. So it's not affecting me too much negatively but there's a potential danger in all uh, conspiracy theory yeah i've never heard somebody be so logical and mentally honest when dealing with conspiracy as you norbu i find that you have a very non-attached way of dealing with it, which probably speaks honors to your Buddhist practices, to your meditation. But uh, you, you mentioned that there are gold nuggets that you get from conspiracy. For those of us who don't have the time to study conspiracy to the extent that you do, what are these gold nuggets that you can tell us? Uh, if you had to pick maybe your three best gold nuggets from conspiracy, what would they be? Uh, I don't think there's any fixed like that. Um, it's just, um, when I say gold nugget, it's probably like something that connects to me personally, you know? Uh, so 
any theory that that sort of connects to me in a personal level or something, then I, I would consider that as a nugget and I would make a special sort of special note of it and sort of try to keep it in my mind. I don't usually make notes or anything like that. Um, so yeah, uh, nothing specific. Uh, my idea of exploring conspiracy theory, theory is just to collect uh, as many theory as possible, just to be open-minded and just listen to wherever my mind kind of drifts and takes. And basically it's, it's a fun thing. So you just let your mind just go and, you know, also trust in the synchronicity. Uh, synchronicity and and just let your mind go and glide and just surf 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 and you know you know at some point there's certain things that really grabs your attention and then and then you keep those you basically you're you're keeping into consideration many theories of course there are some theories that doesn't connect with you at all and you just dump them and uh, and then most of the time you're probably right because it's just too illogical and and so yeah so it's probably safe to dump them and never go back to certain theories but uh, you keep many theories you don't reject uh, as much as possible to listen to them and then uh, you keep keep those theories and then as new as new theories you uh, see there are you try to connect the dots as they say you know you try to find commonalities in different uh, in different theories so that's how you you know that's how certain ideas and concepts uh, start to solidify and then uh, I guess maybe those are also like nuggets so yeah um it's a, it's a personal, you know, so what I see as a gold nugget could be just a stone for you. Uh, I think it all, it's all on a personal level. Um, uh, but yeah, I, I, I don't, I haven't reached any conclusion, you know, uh, it is sort of, you know, certain, certain theories are becoming more convincing than others. Um, so the idea of holographic um, existence, those are becoming more appealing for me, you know, uh, everything is holograph. And um, I mean, it's really difficult to take in, but could be very possible. Um, so in a holographic world, it, it absolutely doesn't matter if the world is round or flat or because it's it's a hologram, you know. Um, everything is a construct. In you know, everything we sense is a. So 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 in that sense, you know, there's there's very little room. Uh, also, in a Buddhist sense, also it's compatible because uh, a Buddha Buddhist believe uh, everything. We're in a sort of a prison, you know. The and the goal is to escape. Um, it's a very, very, uh, like a, almost like a very pes- pessimistic or sort of a negative view, but uh, that's basically what it is. And in a nutshell, in a nutshell, so the idea of a holographic, you know, in a 
closed where if you're in a closed system like a game or a program it's very convincing and and uh and uh what else um the the idea of uh, other entities interfering in our in human um matter um that is also very that also seems very very feasible um you know, so so uh, it doesn't have to be aliens. Um, it could be different beings from this, uh, from our planet itself, or on this Earth itself. There are believed that there are beings under the Earth, you know, under the Earth, and then there are theories of, um, you know, beings in the ocean, maybe. You know, so. Again, these are all conspiracy theories, and I'm not 100% concerned with these. But but these things are becoming more and more. I'm I'm uh, coming to like these theories more. Uh, I'm sure there are a few others, but I cannot remember exactly now. That's absolutely fascinating. On my website, I have a document that I can get that I give out to everybody of the most useful worldviews and the holographic universe does make one of my top worldviews mm. because it gives you maximum power for change uh, in, mm. in your world. If you believe mm -hmm. that everything is just code, kind of like Neo in the matrix, uh, you, mm -hmm. you can edit it and mm -hmm. having, having the belief that you can change your world makes mm -hmm. it a lot more likely that you will end up changing your world than if you believe that it's really dense and out of your control. So I, I really do like that, that perspective. But then what if there's like an architect and whatever you do, you know, at some point they'll just push up a button, like nullify everything. <laughs> well, I don't believe that. <laughs> That's not useful for me. So I don't believe that. <laughs> yeah, it's just, I guess you, you yep. could argue it's possible, but uh, yeah, who knows? Um, yeah, I guess maybe on a certain level, I think we are the own, we are the programmers, and again, you know, architect is like a archetype. You know, like uh, it's it's a very steep unconscious level we we create this this hologram ourselves and and uh, you know everything becomes real because you know on a collective level in a deep sub, uh, deep unconscious level uh, it's creating it uh, so it feels so real uh, so there's no architect or anything but we are the architect ourselves so if you so yeah in that sense um so you you're right we can control but i think there are there are very powerful beings that could be able to manipulate more than we can so uh so i guess um i guess anyone can develop the potential to um, combat uh, that kind of situation you know so so yeah Again, there's a lot of room to explore in the area. 
when I when I look at worldviews, Noru, I tend to look for worldviews, including conspiracy theories, any sort of worldview, anything that adds power and use to my existence. So I like to look at worldviews that I can actively use towards manifesting specific goals that I have. And I, mm-hmm. I don't care so much about whether they are true or false as much as whether they are effective or not effective right. for my specific goals. Right, right. That, that makes total sense, yeah. Yeah, because yeah, the, the, the effect of placebo is uh, very powerful, right? Uh, and it's a very proven thing that there's something about placebo. And as long as it works, it's working, who cares? You know, if, even if it's not a medicine, it's working. Uh, so who cares? You know, as long as it's working. So, uh, so yeah, in that sense, it totally makes sense. I think it's Joe Dispenza that has a course called You Are the Placebo. And I, mm. I really, I really liked, I haven't done the course, but I really liked the idea of that because when, when that word was invented, I don't know the etymology of it, but I know the modern use of that word, it, they, they use it as though it's a negative thing that there's this placebo aspect that's fake. But mm. the reality is the mind aspect is more real than mm. the rest of it. And the fact that you do have so much control over your outcome is empowering mm. to believe. Yeah. You can use that, that you can expand that power of placebo and use that to your advantage. I guess that's what you're saying. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I honestly don't even like the word placebo, but <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, I guess. Yes, yes. <laughs> That's true. Well, Norbu, I want to I want to ask you: Are you able to lead us as as we close? Are you able to lead us in a meditation or an experience where people who have never experienced vipassana will be able to get a brief, maybe like five or ten minute experience of, of what it's like? So what it's well, how you practice is quite simple. Um, uh, you just sit down, uh, whatever's convenient. It doesn't have to be any specific. You try to have your close your eyes. You have your back. Doesn't have to be very straight. Whatever your most, you have to be in ease. You know, you don't have you, you can't you don't need to be in stressful position. You cannot. You don't. The idea is to sort of have a relaxed body. So how you start is. Close your eyes and then you just do breathing very, very, very naturally, um, a very, very normal breathing. And um, uh, you focus on the breath. Uh, you focus on the breath that is touching on the upper lip. So your breath is always your breath is always there, but it's but it's also brushing against the upper lip surface so you're trying to feel that you know so it's not very easy initially but you're you're trying to feel that you might feel some warmth or you might feel some coldness or you might just feel the sensation of brush brushing some something brushing or touching so your goal is to feel that so you or you can just place your place your attention there and then 
try to see, try to feel the breath, you know? So, so yeah, the best is to just, it's possible to put your mind there as like a guard uh, at the entrance of the nose and then, and then try to feel the breath coming in and out. So you, you have to keep the breath very, very, very natural. You don't breathe. You, you are breathing always. You don't have to breathe. Nobody has to breathe. They are always breathing. So you keep, you don't, you don't, you don't consciously breathe. So you just pay attention to the process of your breath. But it's very important to have that sensation component, you know, this feeling, the feeling component. You're, you're breathing, but also you're feeling. So your brush, you know. So the, the example that Buddha gave is the example of a, uh, a carpenter. So his, his Buddha's example is a little difficult to understand because the tool he's explaining is a very ancient tool. But we can make the same uh, example with the saw. Um, saw that is grinding you know that is um you're cutting a piece of wood so your mind is right on the the, bl- the blade the teeth the tooth of the the saw uh where the contacts where the wood is and then your your the, the length of the saw is your breath so you're you're doing up and down up and down so that's in and out breath but your focus where it's affecting is the point where the, the the teeth of the saw is touching the wood. So that's where it's impacting. So your focus should be where there's the, the, the impact is, where it is cutting. So your eyes are always on that point, and you you are the saw is just going in, up and down, up and down. So you you just like that, the point of the point of concentration is where the 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 meeting point of the breath and the the sensation. So you keep your mind there, uh, a single point, and then uh, try to remain there. And there's few ways of doing trying to remain there because mind, you know, it's very easy for the mind to uh, wander around. So what you do is you you try to see uh, which breath is longer or shorter. So your natural breath, sometimes the internal breath is shorter. Sometimes the, the, the exhale is longer. So whatever it is, whatever it is, you just try to find which, whether it's long or short, which one is longer, you know, compare between the inhale and the exhale, which, which one is longer or shorter. So, so you it, it gives your mind a certain something to do. So then it, it's so that it stays there. So that's the, so that you practice in that way. So it, just this practice will take, you know, to, to, to master this will take, you know, many, many days or months or even years. So, uh, so after that, if you're able to put your mind there, single pointed for, let's say a minute or two, uh, usually it's not the case. You know, it's, you know, your breath, you can hardly concentrate on your breath when you begin two, three times, but some people are gifted and talented and they can immediately pick up on practices but yeah so if you're able to do that then the next step is to um, 
to to combine the breathing with your body. So what you do is you feel the whole body. You try to just just you know just try to feel the body. Um, that's the instruction. Okay, so this. Uh, uh, so you're trying to feel the whole body at once. You know at just once and, and you breathe you're also at the same time you are you're noticing your breath you know as it goes in and out you're keeping that focus intact and then you're also feeling your body uh, the whole body in one go and that's one thing and then the next next thing is you are also um, uh, uh, relaxing the body so while you're breathing, you're, while you're maintaining that focus on the breath, you're also uh, feeling the body and then relaxing the body. So you can actually you can you can go part by part, but there's no rule of how how you should go. There's, on the scripture, there's, there's no rule of how, where and how you should go. Basically, you have to be able to try to cover the whole body. So initially, you'll have to choose parts. And it's easier to go to parts that are more, that are that are in pain, you know. That has you know, it's if you're you know, if you're sitting, if you're sitting, you may feel the touch of the floor or the cushion. So those are parts where it's easy to feel. But it, but but the practice is to go everywhere in the body to feel that. So so that's the the anapana practice. So you're initially feeling the breath and then you're combining the breathing and the body so this is this is actually essentially also vipassana practice you know because vipassana practice is more also includes a analysis there's a lot of uh, investigation happening so you're observing these this process but you're making quite a bit of um uh, analysis and uh, investigation of your own process. So this this body and breathing. So the breathing in the body, uh, the 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 anapana practice is more more of a uh, more of an initial practice, but it is also a vipassana. It is the prim- pr- preliminary vipassana. So so yeah, basically, people interested in meditation should. I advise to read up on that Anapana uh, uh, text. And so it's, it's pretty clear. So yeah, that's it. Awesome. Thank you so much, Norbert. That was very special. Yeah. Well, I, I appreciate you coming on the podcast today. I appreciate you sharing all of the different perspectives that you had. We've covered everything from Vipassana to demonology and deities to some pretty abstract philosophy to conspiracy theories. It's been such a pleasure having you on Behind the Grid, Norbu. Thank you so much. Great. Thanks. It was a nice chat.